and welcome to The Weekly Skeptic, episode 61. I'm Nick Dixon, joined by Toby Young as the rain falls upon his little shed, which you might hear throughout the podcast. But coming up, massive protests in London, Starmer's Dilemma, and Boris Johnson joins GB News, plus loads more, and of course, peak woke. But Toby, you've been at the ARC conference, which is Jordan Peterson's big thing. Anything you want to say about that? Well, I will say something, Nick, which is um, uh, I got there, I went yesterday, which was the opening day. Um, and uh, incredibly managed to get there in time for to hear Jordan Peterson welcome everyone. And um, I found it very difficult to take him seriously. I mean, I'm a big Jordan Peterson fan. I think what he's trying to do with ARC is, is fantastic. Um, so big supporter in every conceivable way. But um, very difficult to take him seriously because almost the first thing he said was, he said, I can't do anything like your impression, but he said something along the lines of, um, you know, we are trying to lead what we hope will be a kind of um, a spontaneous eruption of leadership around the world. We're trying to be the catalyst. And that's a bit of a paradox. Can you lead something you want to happen spontaneously? That was the sort of gist of it. He wants it to be a kind of natural, organic movement. But at the same time, he wants him and his colleagues to play a kind of leadership role in kind of creating this movement. And he said, you know, it's a very complicated question. (laughs) And as soon as he said that, <laughs> I just immediately thought of you well, doing your impression. How do you have an organic movement, but you also bleed it? Well, it turns out to be a pretty complicated question. Exactly. And you just start pissing yourself. And I was looking around at you. What's wrong with Toby? Is he still drunk? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so you rather ruined it for me. I was there. I was. I was there expecting, you know, to 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 fall at the feet of my hero, to abase myself, you know, at the feet of my leader, only to get the giggles because he sounded so like you doing an impression of him. Um, and we're in this tremendous venue when, when I think about the men working on the infrastructure. <laughs> Imagine if he'd just done every cliche. And as I, I looked around my apartment today at my Russian art. And he, did, like, yeah, he just does every, oh, that would be so good. Well, yeah, I see what you mean. So did that ruin it for you? Anything else? Uh, no, any it, other takeaways? I thought it was, uh, it was, I mean, for the benefit of our listeners who aren't familiar with this project, it was first described to me as a kind of sound version of Davos. Uh, which I think is a good idea. Um, And certainly they had some pretty high-profile people there. They had the current Speaker um, uh, of the House of Representatives, as well as the previous Speaker, admittedly only by video link, but that that was quite impressive. They had, I think, at least two, possibly three, former Australian Prime Ministers. Um, uh, it, everyone, you know, the great and the good from the kind of thinking, intelligent right, um, not just in Britain, but, you know, seemingly from everywhere. Um, you know, Coleman Hughes was there. Douglas Murray was there. Um, it was an amazing array of speakers and personalities and intellectuals and writers all, all in one place. Um, so it was very impressive. Um, uh, and what they're trying to do, which is, you know, they recognise, I think Jordan Peterson and the other people he's doing this with recognise that um, in order to fight wokeism, we need an alternative, more inspiring story to tell. Um, they've got their narrative and it's gathered quite a lot of momentum, seems to be really appealing to lots of young people. But as we discussed last week, it's very negative, it's very destructive, there's no kind of positive vision underpinning that narrative it's just you know a nihilistic kind of scream um uh, and um so not too difficult you would have thought to come up with you know a positive alternative um but seemingly they haven't worked out what that 
different story is yet. But that's fine, because one of the reasons for the conference was so people could get together and talk to each other and try and work out what the most kind of compelling alternative is to the woke narrative and people seem to be doing that and Ian Hersey Hersey Alley was talking about precisely that on stage and trying to sketch out what she thought this narrative should look like and was pretty compelling Um, so yeah I I really enjoyed it and I'm sorry I haven't been able to go today and won't be able to go tomorrow but I'm hosting a dinner uh, for them um, tonight Um, it's the Lord dinner a bunch of people are hosting dinners and I'm I'm hosting one of them so that's why I've got to slightly cut this podcast short towards the end but no I enjoyed it and you're going tomorrow aren't you yeah my plan is to go tomorrow I find out I actually have a press pass for all the days but I haven't really had time to go anyway so I will go hopefully tomorrow you know at a reasonable hour I mean it's quite far away and you know I stay up very late but I'll go at a reasonable hour hopefully meet some people yeah, and hopefully do some filming, but we'll see what... We won't want to ruin that, so let's see. Let's not jinx it, but let's see what happens. Yeah, and um, I, the one I was at was Battle of Ideas, which is... Oh, by the way, just on that thing about building. Yeah, a lot of people are now saying that, and I saw Dominic Frisbee had a good article today about we need to build stuff. People are just talking, and he's over people just talking on panels. So I've heard a lot of people say that now. The only problem with that is a lot of people now saying we need to build stuff. We're not building anything. That is still just talking. <laughs> so just build your thing and stop saying it. And hopefully by us with us starting our new business we are trying to build something i don't know what count I and mean, i think of the weekly skeptic as actually a kind of an art product really i mean you know the current thing is probably just interviews and interviews are interviews but when you have something like weekly skeptic that's a kind of comic tour de force it, it, it is actually building something but uh, you know and if you're making your own business but we could do more of that i think daily wire is starting to with bent key and their films and stuff you need quite a big budget i mean do you agree with that point that we need to be building yeah, absolutely just complaining absolutely. and talking um they need to clone me, Nick. I mean, uh, you know, um, I've <laughs> co-founded four free schools. I've uh, started the Daily Skeptic, now part of the Weekly Skeptic, and of course, the Free Speech Union helped pull together the October Declaration. I believe in action, in doing. Uh, yeah, um, you can't just talk about how to take on the kind of massed orc armies of the woke theologians. Um, you have to actually you know, build an army yourself. And one of the encouraging things about ARC was that, um, you know, it's quite easy to get dispirited by just how many people and how well-resourced, you know, the other side is. Um, But here were, you know, um, over a thousand people, um, some of them actually paying for tickets, um, packed into this this venue just uh, by the O2, and lots of money and power in the room. Um, So, um, you know, if people who want to build things, you know, want to do it, uh, were there, um, then, then you know, there were plenty of opportunities for them to network and find backers. That's always been my weakness, networking. I managed to alienate the money people by writing brilliant articles and just being too much of a punk-spirited person. So, I mean, well, you've written the book on it, literally, of, <laughs> of alienating people. But that can be, I mean, you seem to have got better at it these days. But that's my problem. I, and I notice that other people schmoozing with the money, whereas I alienate the money people. But, um... But is there something to be said, even if we don't really build stuff or we, we don't have the influence to do that, is there something to be said for consciousness raising? You know, Carl Benjamin made an interesting point about this, that the phrase, the personal is, is the political, seems to have come from 1960s feminism when they were meeting in these groups and they were, you know, they were saying, well, we're just moaning about men, aren't we? And they said, no, no, this is where consciousness raising and the personal is the political. So there is something to be said. And I, I said it to one of my podcast guests jack donovan he said well that's just how that's what culture is is men talking in rooms about stuff so actually i'm not quite as down on the talking part because i think maybe that is where ideas come from 
and maybe in itself is is raising awareness and this this so-called mm. consciousness raising. Well, I, clearly there are kind of two components. You need you need a kind of grand narrative that's going to knit everything together and um, uh, be a counterweight to the woke grand narrative um, and win the hearts and minds of young people and help us take back all the institutions that have been captured. But at the same time, you need some alternative institutions um, and you need to organise and start building coalitions. You need to think, you know, as politically and as strategically as the other side have been. One of the reasons I think uh, that it's taking so long for the alternative narrative, the better story that was talked about a lot yesterday, so long for that to emerge is that as soon as it does emerge, a lot of the people in the anti-woke coalition um, are going to feel a bit alienated. I mean, at the moment, as we've discussed before, we're currently um, in a coalition with, you know, radical feminists. Um, and the moment we sit down and try and articulate a common vision, which is going to be an alternative to the negative, nihilistic, woke narrative, you know, we're going to fall out, aren't we? Because um, there probably isn't that much we agree about. We know what we don't like, but I think agreeing about what we like is going to be much harder. <laughs> yeah, and I got a taste of that at the Battle of Ideas because it's always quite lefty there, in my opinion. Well, it's not, it's everything, but it's there's definitely lefties there. And I did this panel about Andrew Tate, and of course I was doing the pro-Tate side, as our listeners are so sick of hearing about. And um, annoyingly, Dennis... Kavanaugh was very funny. I said to him, you were too funny. That was quite annoying because I'm normally the funny one. But we were both... If, if, but if we teamed up as men, we absolutely smoked the women because the, the women's side were being very serious. There was two women. They were being very serious. One of them was being quite lefty and feminist. One of them was being sort of more moderate. And uh, Whereas we were doing the men's side and we were a bit lot more pro-man and I was pro-Tate. But I got some good laughs. That's all it's about. Open strong, get the laughs, and I close strong. So that's all that matters to me. But it, it, a lot of people said it was the, the best debate. It was very lively. So that was a battle of ideas. Spoke to Claire Fox, who brilliantly organizes it after for a long time. And we are very different. I mean, it's funny, Claire's come from sort of the far left, I guess you might call it. And so we are very different. And we, I am different to the, the feminists. But yeah, like you say, we're in a temporary coalition. Yeah, well, sometimes Leo says, you know, it's good for us anytime something ridiculous happens, like Labour getting in or whatever it is. He always says, this is good for us, for our grift. So I, I don't know, you know, do we just exist to kind of as a counterculture to say, oh, this is rubbish, or can we make something of our own that will sustain even if we don't have these things to fight against? That is an interesting question. Yeah, well, I think I think um, it's a pertinent question because assuming Labour do win the next general election and the Conservatives are in opposition for at least five years, the big task on the Conservative side will be to rebuild, to find a new leader, to come up with, you know, uh, a, a, a well-worked-out legislative programme, just as the Centre for Policy Studies did with Margaret Thatcher between 75 and 79. Uh, so we need to be thinking about what it is we stand for and whether we can agree on a common programme and how it is we differ from, you know, people on the other side. So, you know, it's, it's, it, the, the art conference is, is very timely. Yeah, and that's all about the direction of the Conservative Party and will it be Farage, will it be something actually Conservative? And on, on that kind of topic... Boris Johnson has announced he's joining GB News. Now, this one, this is very interesting. And I've had a lot of tweets about it. And thank you for all your tweets saying that we're awful and somehow blaming me and saying you're all... Ca <laughs> Someone replied, you're all spineless cowards. And I said, yeah, yeah, because I'm in charge of GB's hiring policy, but I'm, I have so much integrity, I don't even give myself a show. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like shouting at the person on the desk because your flight's delayed. Like, what have I got to do? Whoever gets sacked from GB, I get tweets. Whoever gets hired, I get tweets. Somehow I always get abusive tweets. 
Then the guy replied and goes, no, I don't mean you at all, Nick, and was really nice. So I'm like, well, if you don't mean me, can you can you not reply with, you're all spineless cowards? Because I, replying to my tweets, and I might think you mean me, you know, I'm that kind of guy. Um, so the point is, is it good for GB? Because it was all said, oh, GB's imploding, and the, the, the mainstream media are absolutely just spaffing their pants about how GB's imploding. But now we suddenly have the former prime minister. Then again, many viewers, as I've said, don't like him because of lockdowns, because he's woke and all these kind of other accusations. And of course, the lockdown thing is a valid point. He was, he, but then again, you can say, well, with the lockdowns were more moderate than other people, blah, blah, blah. John Cleese, who just, his own show was just launched on GB, helpfully said, I can hardly believe that GB News will give this proven serial liar his own program. So thanks, John. And the show will just be Boris. I thought he was going to be in the studio ranting doing straight to camera, I'll be able to get him on the podcast, you know, it'd be brilliant, and you're already mates with him, but he's not, he's going to be gallivanting around the world, in my estimation, probably to try and situate himself for a future job with the UN or whatever it is, I don't know what currently his role is, and, you know, he's going to be talking about global Britain, and just to quote what he said, so he won't really be in the studio, it'll be more of a docu thing from what I can gather, and he says, uh, Boris said in his little video, I'm going to be giving this remarkable new TV channel my unvarnished views on everything from Russia, China, the war in Ukraine, how we meet all those challenges to the huge opportunities that lie ahead for us, why I think our best days are yet to come, and why on the whole the people of the world want to see more global Britain, not less. So this weird global Britain globalist thing. And by the way, Toby, if, if our best op- huge opportunities, if our best days are yet to come, I'm like, really, are we going to take over the entire globe then, because we used to own like three quarters of it or something. And so I always had this ridiculous idea that our best days are yet to come because we had an empire and ran everything. So that's incredibly unlikely. But, and just lastly, to end on Toby, and you can answer any of this, uh, is, does Boris have a serious chance of becoming the second most loved presenter on GB News? Okay. Um, so um, is GB News in trouble with Ofcom? Well, Ofcom has got, it's just hired a new person, I think, um, to oversee their broadcast division who is a former Sky News executive who was rude about GB News just before it launched. So um, people have been speculating. There was a piece, I think, in um, see, I think it was in the Sunday Times, um, uh, possibly in the Telegraph, saying that now that there is a new broom um, at Ofcom, not the chief exec, but one down from the chief exec, um, but who'll be deciding you know, uh, whether to investigate GB News what sort of fines to impose, what penalties beyond fines to impose, um, if they're found to be in breach of the broadcast code, etc. Um, so that could be that could spell trouble. I think in the past, GB News has um, one of the criticisms about the fact that it's it it's it hires MPs like Jacob Rees-Mogg, Esther and Phil, uh, Lee Anderson, and and makes them presenters when they're still serving MPs, is that. Um, it, you're supposed during news coverage to be politically impartial. That's part of the broadcasting code. You can't, you're not supposed to inject a partisan political point of view in what is clearly signposted as news coverage. So the question then becomes, well, is Jacob's show, um, is, is um, Esther and Phil's show, does that, does, that, is that, does that fall under the definition of news coverage? And GB News's way of, 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 of saying, no, it doesn't, is to differentiate those shows and the content of those shows from straightforward news coverage by 
bookending them with news bulletins. So they're saying the news bulletins are the news coverage and they are politically impartial. But we're allowed to be, we're allowed to have a point of view um, in these other segments. But you, you you should grant us a bit more latitude in those other segments because they're not strictly news. They are presenter-led shows in between the newsy bits. Uh, but it may be, and, and I think that has protected GB News up until now, but it may be that the new broom decides, no, that's not good enough. Um, uh, you need to, you need a higher standards of impartiality, even in these bits between the news bulletins. And it seems like by hiring Boris, it's almost as though they're trolling, you know, um, Ofcom, is it, is it daring Ofcom to kind of uh, accuse them of, of breaching the broadcasting code by having senior politicians express their opinions, you know, for hours at a time um, uh, on what appears to be a news channel. Um, but I think it's a masterstroke, and I'll tell you why. The reason I think one of the reasons um, GB News has hired Boris is because they're thinking ahead to uh, how they're going to cover the next general election. And I imagine that what they'll do is they'll get Boris to anchor the general election coverage. Um, uh, and that'll be that'll be TV goal, because, of course, you know, how's Boris going to react when the Tories lose, say, Surrey Heath, Michael Gove's seat? Not saying they will, but suppose they do. That'll be a, that'll be t- to see Boris react to one of his political enemies losing their seat. That'll be TV gold. I mean, that that clip will go viral instantly. Um, and just to see how Boris will react to see the Tories doing so much more badly, you know, next year than they did under him in 2019 that'll just be you know they could pro- they'll probably beat the bbc itv sky everybody if boris is anchoring you know their general election coverage so i think it's a masterstroke yeah i did think about that how it would sort of be starmer as the, the larger picture as well of, of starmer in as prime minister and then the opposition being kind of gb news with boris there and it kind of quite it's quite an interesting picture i mean one thing I was thinking about that is, yeah, maybe he'll literally, I didn't think about him literally hosting the election coverage. That's possible. It sounds like he's going to be more, you know, around the world, but let's see. I mean, one thing I thought that was very strange is GB News is still cancelled and boycotted by all these major companies because of this ridiculous ad boycott. But how can we be cancelled while having the former prime minister, who was just an incredibly popular prime minister, voted in by a massive landslide about 10 minutes ago? And it's so strange. Then I thought, are we going a bit like the US where they're trying to put Trump in prison you know we have this because boris is kind of cancelled himself you could argue he's got he's going through this kangaroo court COVID inquiry you know he was in he was got rid of by a coup and now he's on a sort of cancelled tv channel do you think there's sort of something going on there where these people who should be mainstream figures much like in the us not to the same extent they're sort of cancelled or is there, is there anything in that or not i don't know i think it would be i think it's 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 not that they're cancelled it's more that um, the culture war has um, enveloped um, our kind of broadcasting ecosystem. And, you know, you're either on one side of it, in which case you're on talk radio, GB News, um, uh, or you have your own kind of alt media channel, or you're on the other side, in which case you're on the BBC, LBC, Sky News, ITV, Channel 4, etc. Um, uh, and that seems to be what's happening. You know, the, the, the kind of broadcast environment is fragmenting. And that's true kind of of other aspects of British culture that used to be politically impartial above the fray, you know, part of a common culture. There seems to be less and less common culture and more just a culture that belongs to our side 
in the culture war and a culture that belongs to the other side. Yeah, but it's just so strange to me that a, a very such a recent prime minister could be part of a channel that's so disgraced that it can't have Sainsbury's or IKEA advertising on it. I mean, if Boris walked into a Sainsbury's, would he be refused service? You know, I mean, that would be consistent. Would he be allowed to get a flat pack wardrobe in IKEA or yeah, whatever it is? I don't, it is odd, um, but I think maybe GB News um, has has realised that um, it isn't going to survive financially if it tries to attract advertising because um, those big brands are always going to be wary of advertising on GB News um, uh, for a variety of wrong reasons, uh, but because of the success of campaigns waged by organisations like Stop Funding Hate um, and because, you know, most advertising agencies and big companies now have been captured by the woke. So if it's going to survive, it's going to have to figure out a way of... um, uh, attracting subscription revenue um uh, whether that means you know charging like sky sticking themselves behind a paywall as it were or some alternative to that whereby if you subscribe you get extras uh, uh, um i don't know but i think they get that that's got to be their future business model and you can see how boris would fit into that model people would i mean i'd pay to see boris anchor gb news's general election night coverage um i'd probably pay 20 quid to see that <laughs> i'm sure lots of other people would too yeah, I mean, that would be great. But you think it's the subscription? I don't think that, well, they are going to do an American branch. Maybe they'll do a subscription branch. I've heard things about that. I think they just have to, I think they just have to accept that it's going to be an investor model and they're not going to get advertising. But I suppose they, that both things can be true there. They have investors and they have subscriptions. But um, yeah, I mean, do you, do you think there's anything in this fact of Boris being disgraced? I mean, maybe Boris would have been a coup at an earlier time, but is he now disgraced? So he's disgraced for the John Cleases and, and many people have been on that side because he's a proven liar and party gate blah 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 but he's also disgraced by the sort of hardcore because of lockdowns and lots of people have said oh lots of people who follow me and like me like oh i can't believe you're getting boris on i mean do we have to we do we worry about that because of course i was vehemently against the lockdowns as as were you yeah i think i think he's sufficiently discredited that i think it would be very difficult for him to make any kind of political comeback um, uh, uh, but I don't think he's sufficiently discredited that people won't want to tune in and watch him on GB News. I think he's he's probably you know um, uh, disgraced, but still well liked. Yeah, he's an odd figure because his very presence annoys the left and annoys the people we like to annoy. But at the same time, people say no, that's a kind of trap nit because you never forget he was against lockdowns. Never forget he's been a bit of a lib on all sorts of issues, and that is true. But he kind of like he doesn't really deliver in the same way as Trump, although Trump was also pro, we also oversaw the lockdown and was massive, massively pushed the vaccine program. And yet seems to have sort of retained a bit more of his kind mm. of edgy sort of cultural capital on the right in a way that Boris hasn't. Boris is just sort of seen as a kind of flip-flopping sort of woolly lib, isn't he? So I, look, overall, I understand people's concerns. I think it's great for the channel just in the sense that it's a big name and it shows that we're not imploding and it's just kind of making big moves in that kind of sense from someone who works there and kind of wants it to continue unless all these Tories take my job. But um, but it, yeah, but I also understand people's concerns and they're, on the things they're shouting at me on Twitter. I would have thought from your point of view, it's, it's quite flattering for the reasons we've discussed before. You know, um, isn't it extraordinary that um, someone who was, until just over a year ago, the most powerful man in the country it had it been about as successful in politics as it's possible to be um, now wants to be a presenter on GB News. He basically wants to be you. 
Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. I've reached the top and have to stop. I mean, I used to think, oh, it'd be great to be a politician. Or not great, but I was considering it. As you pointed out, you literally made a massive difference when you said, but they, they, they just all end up at GB News anyway, Nick. And I was like, good point. It's not worth the hassle. And so now, yeah, the prime minister, that's the ultimate, isn't it? Because I thought, yeah, maybe I should be prime minister. But I'm like, I've already transcended it by being a presenter on GB News, which is the absolute top job. Yeah. Or you could say it's the retirement home if you want to be less generous. Yeah. Yeah, um, it looks like um, another another. I mean, another perk of being a successful politician, other than a show on GB News, is you get invited to be on "I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here." It sounds like Nigel Farage is going to do that. Actually, I was on GB last night on Jacob's show, and uh, just before I went on, Nigel came out and I said, "Nigel, you got to go in the jungle. You'll smash it, mate." And he kind of was laughing about it and um, it sounded to me as though, you know, he's seriously considering it and uh, I, it, not quite a done deal, apparently. It was been presented in, in the press as a done deal, you know, uh, uh, but apparently it's not a done deal, but he's considering, he's still negotiating, but it sounds to me as though he's going to do it. He said it would be a great way to kind of reach young people. I think he's been quite impressed by his reach on TikTok, uh, which is a relatively new new development for him. Um, uh, so, you know, he said, you know, how else are you going to reach young people and try and persuade them of the benefits of Brexit and try and talk them out of, you know, all the woke nonsense they believe? You know, here's an opportunity for me to, you know, get a hearing. And he's right about that. Um, and, you know, I can see him doing really well. I mean, if Matt Hancock can come third, Nigel can surely win it. Yeah, someone told me about that video and I haven't even watched it, but I can easily imagine it just got for us. You know, say what you like about the jungle. A lot of people mock it, but young people watch it. 18 to 24, and it is a good way of communicating with those people. Let's see. What we do is it like shout something at the end, you know, I'm giving it serious <laughs> consideration, and then he moves on. But it, yeah, I think he, yeah. <laughs> and I had a nice chat with him the other day. I finally managed to speak to him, which was good, because I'm too shy. I've had a really good chat. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it, because it, it was off the record, but it was very interesting. And um, yeah, so, so yeah, it's good for us. We need to, we need to get Farage on, on, I need to get Farage on the other podcast, and I need to speak to Jacob, but then we'll, yeah, you're right. And then Boris. I mean, these are all my colleagues now. Yeah, I'm sure B B Boris will eventually. I mean, it's inevitable, isn't it, that he ends up on I'm a Celeb? I mean, his <laughs> sister did Celebrity Big Brother. His father, Stanley, did I'm a Celeb. I mean, it's only a matter of time, surely. Maybe maybe he'll even be the big reveal this year. Weren't you offered to be on The Jungle once? I was. Yeah, I screwed it up because oh, yeah. um, at the end of the very positive meeting in which I thought I'd said all the right things, you know, scared of heights, scared of snakes, scared of the dark, scared of spiders, uh, very quarrelsome, um, got very angry when I, when I, when I was hungry, I thought, yeah, they just thought perfect. And, uh, and then, and then I said, uh, they said, have you got anything, any advice for us? You sound like you're a big fan of the show. I said, oh yes, I am. Any, 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 how could we make it even better? I said, less Anton Deck. Yeah. You, you overalize it's just, too much filler with Anton Deck telling these bad jokes, you know, cut down on them. Classic. At which point, stony silence descended on the room and, you know, as though a chute opened beneath my feet and I sort of went tumbling out with the rubbish. And as you said, I think uh, it, it, it was as if, and it actually might have been the case, Anton Deck were kind of uh, monitoring the interview remotely. <laughs> and so they just didn't know how to respond when I said that. Yeah. Yeah. That is funny. That is. I'm sorry if we said that before on the podcast, but that is classic Toby autism. But I'm the same. I mean, I've alienated yeah. my one billionaire contact with writing something. So, you know, we need to stop alienating these people, Toby. You're getting better, but we need to just get better at schmoozing and sucking up and not saying we hate the hosts of the show we're trying to get on. <laughs> <laughs>
didn't say I hated them. No, no, just that they're crap <laughs> and there's too much of them. Yeah. <laughs> Tone it down, lads. Um, a, li- a, little, a little goes a long way with Anton Brock. <laughs> Thanks, person who is not even any part of the show, whose opinion we don't... It's like one of those things, isn't it? Any weaknesses? It's like a job interview. Any, what are your weaknesses? And you just say something, you know, they don't really want to hear something actually yeah. bad. Uh, I'm, I'm shit I'm at work. I'm a kleptomaniac. <laughs> I'm lazy and stupid. I'm really lazy, yeah. I'm completely dishonest and untrustworthy. Yeah. I'm a criminal. Um, <laughs> I've got, what, when I sit next to an attractive girl at a board meeting, I've got really wandering hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in many ways, you shouldn't hire me. Uh, yeah, it's like, okay, well, we, we like your honesty. Goodbye forever. Um, yeah, it's too honest, Toby. Too honest. Um, we both got that problem. All right, well, that's Boz, as I'm going to now call him. The other problem is I'm known as the big dog on Headliners, but he's the original big dog where I got the name from. My whole thing was I said, if Boris can just call himself the big dog, it was Operation Save Big Dog. I was like, why can't I just call myself it? And that's how it stuck. But now he's trying to come in onto my patch, so it's going to kick off. But let's see what happens. Um, All right, let's move on to a horrifically serious story now. Sharp left turn here. The the, the About 100,000 people marched through uh, central London to demand the ceasefire in Gaza, with many also expressing fury at the UK government's refusal to back one, although that quote, I think, does come from The Guardian. And, you know, it's a lot of people, I mean, it was less than the Iraq war by a huge number, and that didn't do anything because I was in those protests and Blair completely ignored us all. So it's not necessarily that the numbers are the problem, but it was a kind of eye-opening moment for many people to see that many people out on the streets with a kind of radically, now you can be pro-Palestine, but a kind of, pretty radical agenda who pretty much hate us and maybe they're not all haters but lots of people just found the image of it kind of quite disturbing to see that number of people i mean and carl benjamin had a very good take on it maybe too um, right wing for you toby but he says the pro-palestine protests that are currently being held across the west elicit such a deep and pre-political feeling of revulsion because they evidently represent a foreign nation asserting itself in our midst liberals are suddenly taken aback by this because it hits liberalism in a, in a particular blind spot Liberalism processes the world in terms of indistinguishable individual agents, each of whom is theoretically a rational self-authoring individual that is consciously following their own conception of the good life. This conception of a person is demonstrated to be shockingly wrong as the protests reveal a tribal mindset in which the individual is not something separate from the religion and community and is certainly not considered to be a self-authoring and rational. And he goes on and he basically says, but we've checkmated ourselves with liberalism, which doesn't leave us any way of doing anything about it because we just say, you're following the rules and that's all we have. We're not allowed to ask, look, since the only test liberalism could impose on newcomers was, can you follow our rules and not, will you join our tribe? We are conceptually helpless to organize or resist such forward motion on their part. So I find that pretty interesting. And I, it made me think that maybe what we had all along was not liberalism. We just had England. And it's much more of a Scrutonian view of it, uh, that it's all about place and not this kind of floating anywhere man of liberalism. Anyway, and further to this, there was, a, there was an interesting point about how we can't actually get rid of people who are completely against our country. So there was this guy, Dili Hussain, and he's a kind of, he said, this is the kind of welcome all Israelis should be receiving at airports of Muslim majority countries. And it was a kind of video with people attacking Israelis or storming the airport. Yeah, it was, it was, like, it was, it was a sort of a pop-up program right. in which a group of um, Muslim anti-Semites in a Russian province um, stormed an airport because they'd heard that um, a plane carrying people from Israel was about to land and they wanted to stop it landing 
in their province. Right. Um, and in the end, the plane had to be diverted. But they were they were stopping, you know, buses leaving the airport, asking to see people's passports. I mean, they were really were literally a pitchfork mob. Yes. Um, and God knows what they would have done if they had actually found anyone with an Israeli passport. Yeah. It was really yeah, exactly. Quite- it was in uh, Dagestan. And I should have uh, looked into that more because I, I meant to look into that. But yeah, you, you covered it quite well anyway. And this guy, Dili Hussain, said, this is the kind of welcome all Israelis should be receiving at the airports of Muslim-majority countries. Pretty shocking. Douglas Murray says, what is this man doing in our country? Uh, and he wrote in reply, this Dili Hussain, multiplying. So there you go. Pretty clear how he sees it. He wants to take over, basically. And... And Carl said this is a brilliant illustration of his point. And David Aronovich finally said, Hussein was born in Britain and is a British citizen. He's also an extremist who very carefully treads the legal line. But he, he can no more be deported than can Murray or can I. And Carl was saying that's the perfect cherry on the cake to point out, you know, to c- complete his point. What do you make of any of that, Toby? Yeah, well, it's, I, think, um, I think these protests, not just here, but in other parts of the world, um, may well have a lasting impact on the immigration debate um, and what, what, what's, what's a respectable opinion and an unrespectable opinion within that debate. Uh, Ed West had a good piece about this today, actually, on his Substack. But, um, you know, it's been very difficult for people to raise concerns about immigration, about the failure of particular migrant communities to integrate, about whether we can survive as a society with these large, unintegrated, multiplying populations. It's very difficult to have a serious conversation about all of these things without being people people worry that if they raise these concerns, they'll be branded a xenophobe or a racist or a little Englander, or they'll be, you know, on the wrong side of history. And people are very inhibited about, you know, expressing their reservations about these things, their anxieties. And for that reason, we haven't had a serious conversation about it. But as Ed West pointed out, even in the absence of a serious conversation, actually, no, this wasn't Ed West. This was um, Jay Sorrell in today's Daily Skeptic. He wrote a great piece for us about immigration and the immigration debate. Um, And he pointed out that in successive elections, the electorate has made it clear that they want the government to reduce overall levels of inward migration. Um, They couldn't have been clearer about that. They've been, yeah, that's been the clear message of successive elections. It was one of the messages of the Brexit vote. And yet it still it never happens. So it's almost as though we don't really need to have a debate about this. Um, everyone, everyone's made up their minds and the overwhelming majority want us to have less inward migration. Um, uh, but um, it, it, to give you an example of how this debate is changing elsewhere, France is talking about deporting uh, Muslim extremists. Um, in the wake of some of the protests that have broken out in France. There was a sort of in, in, intifada that broke out in France a few years ago. There was permanent rioting um, in Muslim areas in some of France's larger cities over the summer. Almost a complete collapse of law and order in some parts of France. Um, so Macron is now talking about deporting some Muslim lawbreakers, Muslim extremists, um, and doing it even in the teeth of opposition from the European Court of Human Rights, which is a big sea change um, for him. You know, um, it's almost as though he's now siding with Suella Braverman on this issue, which is, you know, not where he was until very recently. In Sweden, uh, there's a proposal being considered by the Swedish government. I don't think they've adopted it yet, whereby any Muslim 
migrant that earns less than 2,322 euros per month should be deported. And that's about a third, something like a third, maybe 30% of the of the Muslim population in Sweden. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm quite uncomfortable with the idea of, um, you know, a loyalty test and anyone who fails that loyalty test, if they're not an indigenous Britain who can trace their ancestry back several generations, should be deported. I mean, I think that's granting the state um, a degree of power that I'd be uncomfortable with. And, you know, I think David Aronovich makes a good point. I mean, even though Dili Hussein, uh, even though his, his views are deeply offensive and toxic um you know he he stays on just on the right side of the law and he was born here he's a british citizen um so um you know to to change the law whereby if someone commits certain crimes and you know their parents weren't born here we should be able to deport them um that would be a, a big step and one I think I'd be uncomfortable with and also you know where where would where would Dili be deported to you know and we, we can't persuade any country to accept um you know Shamima Bigham um uh it, it's a problem the the, the 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 displaced Palestinian population has you know no country wants them um uh, uh all these countries that supposedly all these surrounding Arab countries that support the Palestinian cause um, don't want them in their country. Um, you know, Jordan doesn't want them. Egypt doesn't want them. Iran doesn't want them. Um, uh, uh, so, um, you know, uh, where would Dili go? Um, uh, it's certainly not obvious. And um, I, I think it's a political fantasy to think that that, that that is that is an option. I mean, but but you know, maybe the Swedish government's going to do it. And I don't know where, where are these where are the people they're going to deport are going to go. Maybe they're talking about deporting, you know, um, people who are still having their asylum applications processed um, uh, or people who have a kind of residency permit but not yet full citizenship. I think deporting British citizens um, because they express support for our enemies or reject our core values, I think that would be, that, 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 that would be quite dangerous and illiberal. But if we are unable to assert our values and we keep having mass immigration, we just destroy our country and ultimately there is no Britain, there is no England, there is no liberalism, there is no whatever England was. I mean, Carl says at the end, the newcomers are not liberals. They're from the old world of tribes. They don't understand why we permit this either and make no mistake, they don't respect us for this tolerance. So, you know, he says that Aristotle was right when he said that the basis of a nation is the bond of friendship. In other words, you know, you have people here now, they don't, we don't have any of the same shared assumptions. Um, you know, Kemi Badenoch, the other day, spoke about the social contract being broken and some other things, other similar phrases that I can't recall exactly now, but it was to do with these unspoken contracts that we have in society. But, but if people come in who don't have them, that's a serious problem. And how do you, how do you get people to have them? I mean, they're not going to suddenly have your views because they emerge organically, don't they, over generations so so i don't if you can't so i don't see how we solve it i mean i understand your problem your point yeah that is we can't just suddenly deport all kinds of people so i don't understand how we how we end up with a country in the, in the long term but that's well, my point it, 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 it may be that um carl is and others who you know who've expressed alarm about these mass protests in major cities like london seemingly every Saturday, maybe they are um, uh, exaggerating the extent to which the protesters 
reject British values. It could just be, you know, that they're engaging in tribal behaviour, like football fans, you know, on their way to and from a football match. So they're, you know, they're, 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 they're being, they're, 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 that's not who they normally are. You know, they're just indulging their most atavistic tribal instincts for an afternoon. Um, but in the calm light of day, um, when asked if they support democracy, respect individual rights, um, think that religious differences should be tolerated and so forth, they'd actually embrace many of the values we think of as British values. And I think, you know, surveys of Britain's Muslim population have discovered that um, even though on some issues they are at loggerheads with, you know, the main political parties, particularly the Israel-Palestine conflict, um, issues like same-sex marriage, uh, whether sex should be taught in schools, uh, whether they obviously have, you know, many of them um, uh, uh, less tolerance for apathy and um, uh, heresy when it comes to insulting the Quran, drawing pictures of Muhammad and so forth. In certain respects, they do part company with you know, the majority of Britons, but in other respects, they're pretty closely aligned. Um, so it might be that just seeing 100,000 seemingly Muslim extremists on the streets of London you know, saying unspeakable things um, uh, uh, makes us unduly alarmed. And just as we shouldn't judge, you know, um, the population of Shepherd's Bush by QPR fans <laughs> on a Saturday afternoon on their way to and from the game, so we shouldn't judge British Muslims by the behaviour of 100,000 in London kind of getting a bit overexcited and being unusually tribal. Well, I think that's one of those takes with respect that we'll get our reviewers saying that you've been a bit naive. I mean, you know, to me, it's who they are when the shit hits the fan. So it, it, so they revert to who, you know, how they actually see themselves, which is Palestinian, certainly not British, and which is obviously anti-Israel and in many cases anti-Jewish. And that's just how it is. You know, that, and it, to, so I disagree, obviously. I think it reveals who they actually are. But... And by the way, just a quick thing, because some reviews have criticised us for not mentioning Gaza. None of this means that I'm, you know, pro-bombing civilians. You know, it, it, the podcast would be quite boring if we had to just say, and by the way, we're against the bombing of innocent people all the time, because, you know, that's a sort of a given. But we focus a lot on Israel because of the culture war aspect to it. It doesn't mean that I want innocent people to be bombed. Yeah, I think, but I think, I think, yeah, I, I think the issue isn't that, you know, Many British Muslims, perhaps the majority, are taking the side of Gaza and by implication Hamas um, over Israel in this particular conflict. Um, the issue surely is, I mean, I don't think that, you know, those are grounds for getting unduly alarmed about the failure of multiculturalism. Um, you know, plenty of white Britons take the side of Gaza and Hamas against Israel as well. The real the real issue is the reason it's it's a potential problem um, is that a lot of the protesters anyway seem to be anti-Semitic and a lot of what's being preached in various mosques across the country is straightforwardly anti-Semitic in a way that could endanger 
our Jewish British population. Um, uh, that, that's why it's really alarming. You know, if you think these, if you think that one community, which is a growing community, um, poses a threat to another community because of the intolerance for Jews and because of a kind of strain of anti-Semitism that dates back to, you know, the seventh century, um, then we've got a problem. In it. And, and that, that's what we have to think about. We have to think about how to address that. But I think I don't think we I don't think I mean, I, I think it is a big problem um, and, an, and, an, and, an, and something that people should be alarmed about. Um, but, um, you know, so far, at any rate, um, uh, uh, Jews are still safer you know, in Britain than they are in France and many other European countries. Um, uh, but if, 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 if the number of anti-Semitic attacks continues to increase, if Jewish parents are fearful about sending their children to school, if we have to increase security around synagogues and so on and so forth, then we've got a problem and it's something we need to do something about. Yeah, and I differ slightly in that I think, of course, the, the anti-Semitism and attacks on Jewish people is, is obviously horrific, but I think that's the spotlight that... That, that, that then makes people see this is a wider problem. So it's a pity that, you know, we couldn't do it about just defending our values in general. It's a pity that no one cared about Christians or, you know, any any other group you can name that our country might represent. It, but the, it's good that we at least care about Jewish people. But it's had to get to that point of open, flagrant anti-Semitism on our streets and calls for jihad and all this kind of thing for people to see, oh, maybe it's not ideal to have loads and loads of people who are, who basically despise your way of life. That to me, to me, it's more that that's exposed it, and to the point where I imagine, and certain Jewish people I've spoken to are thinking like this. Jewish people have to go, oh, have we been to, you know, uh, sort of pro-immigration and those those kind of things? And we have to look at, we have to look at our liberal assumptions, as Carl is saying in that post, and say, is this flawed? To me, that's what it's done. You're saying sort of the anti-Semitism is the problem, but that's that's maybe the problem in itself. And the one community is attacking another. I, I say that that exposes a wider problem, and it's merely the kind of well. I think yeah, I, I think I think shocking example. It, it does expose a wider problem, but I'm not sure it's the wider problem you're thinking of. The wider problem is that um, uh, vast swathes of our population, not just Muslims, um, are anti-Western. They don't believe um, in individualism they are scathing about capitalism they think the west has just left behind this litany of exploitation and destruction um, it's colonialist it's permanently tarnished by the original sin of slavery we need to tear down our institutions we need to punish privileged white men um, uh, to me the kind of muslim protests are symptomatic of that bigger problem, not the bigger problem of the failure of some communities to integrate. It's a kind of general failure of people who believe in the West and want the West to thrive to communicate to these alienated, vast swathes of alienated people why they should care about it too. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the a lot of the protests do seem to have a kind of anti-Western tenor. Um, uh, you know, why aren't, why don't Muslims, why don't British Muslims protest about all the Palestinians that have been killed by, you know, Assad's bombs in Syria? There are many more 
Palestinians, I believe, in Syria than there are in Gaza. Um, I may have got that wrong, but I think I read that somewhere. Um, why don't you know British Muslims protest about the internment in you know at best re-education camps, probably more like concentration camps in China of up to two million Uyghurs? Israel is targeted in part because it's associated with the West. It's part of a kind of anti-colonial agenda. And that, that that's the bigger problem. The bigger problem is that, uh, you know, as Jordan Peterson would say, we need a story to tell all these alienated people to help them understand why they should value uh, all these institutions and traditions and laws and customs they're benefiting from. Absolutely. I have said that before. It's at least a twofold problem. There's the people on the streets shouting jihad is a solution and the armies of the Muslim countries must rise up and so on. And the Met Police going, oh, they mean the, an inner struggle. That's obviously a problem, those people on the streets. And the other big problem is the war of ideas, the decolonization, the Ivy League students saying the same thing in their own way. Absolutely. And the, the, and the twofold problem there. Absolutely. That's, that is key. And you're right. I mean, I think just to sort of um, sum up my position, mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, before thinking about authoritarian solutions like mass deportations, um, let, 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 let's try, you know, um, uh, uh, to win over hearts and minds. Let's 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 try and persuade, you know, these alienated populations, not just Muslims, but, you know, people under the age of 32. Um, let, let's try and engage in an effort to persuade them why they shouldn't be supporting um, genocidal anti-Semitic terrorists, but should be on the side of the only liberal democracy in the region where gay rights and, and women's rights are defended. Um, you know, that, that seems to me to be the more attractive route um, and, and not completely hopeless. You know, I don't think that's, you know, pitifully naive to think it might be possible to try and at least persuade some of the people currently protesting, and they're not all Muslims, about the conflict on the side of the Palestinians, um, that, uh, you know, that, that, that they should reflect a bit more, um, uh, particularly, you know, gays for Palestine or gays for Gaza or whatever they call queers themselves. Queers for Palestine, I mean, it's yeah. just queers for Palestine that's just you would have thought if you could sit down with one of them it wouldn't be that hard maybe I'm just being naive it would certainly be naive as Sam Harris said in that recent interview to to try and engage with a Hamas like that an actual jihadi someone with the mindset of yeah. I'm going to go to paradise if I cause maximum carnage um, so that you can't engage with that because it's not rational whereas you could engage yes with the students who have merely been brainwashed because their prefrontal cortex hasn't fully developed yet and they think they're just automatically on the side of good and so find themselves doing horrific things as we saw at Evergreen College a few years ago and kicking out Jewish people and mm. white people from campus and so on. Yeah, you, those people perhaps are not completely lost. I mean, you know, we've all had stupid views when we're young. So yeah, maybe, maybe. And I like, I mean, I like your optimism. Some people definitely can't be reached, but maybe some can. Of course, I think the country's lost and everything's hopeless, but that, that's, that's me. I still crack on and do the podcast. But uh, I think that's you know, one of the, I think, a more likely um, outcome, consequence of these mass protests that are happening every Saturday is not mass deportations. I mean, maybe there'll be a more thoughtful, more serious, less inhibited debate about um, mass immigration. Maybe the next government will do something 
will take the problem more seriously. Uh, but I think the main output will be um, uh, much more energy and focus on trying to come up with a story which is going to appeal to young people, to British Muslims, to all these alienated communities about why they should care about our country, our traditions, liberal democracy, Western values. I think that that's going to be that's going to be the main. That there's going to be a lot of effort. I feel in that area. I think people have woken up to the fact that there is something deeply toxic about the kind of woke religion, and it is deeply destructive and has at its heart this kind of really toxic nihilism that can result in things like the massacre in Israel on October 7th, or at least a bl- turning a blind eye to it. Uh, and I think I think pe- people will finally wake up to the threat that that really toxic ideology poses to the future of the West. And there'll be a real concerted effort to try and tackle that. Um, I think that'll be the main outcome. Just to clarify, I've not actually called for mass de- deportations. You might have been responding to your interpretation of what Carl said, I, although I didn't see him to do it either. But so you might just be referencing France, but um, or Sweden. But yeah, uh, it, re- reducing immig- re- reducing immigration, stopping illegal immigration, and much more strenuously making the case for the West and telling that, telling our story, as you point out. Yeah, those are some of the solutions, maybe. But um, all right, just because I've trailed it in the intro. And we don't have that much time because you have to go. I should, should also get on to Starmer because he's been in an interesting dilemma with his stance on Israel, saying that ceasefire is not appropriate and he's losing Muslim counselors all over the place. He's got many of his party who are on the ceasefire side. Sadiq Khan, there was an article in the Telegraph, defies Keir Starmer with call for Israel Gaza ceasefire. And of course, the ceasefire is seen as an inherently kind of pro-Palestine or even as Tom Tugendhat said, siding with Hamas stance because you know you, you're, you're saying oh it's, we want a ceasefire when someone's just done a horrific attack who's not a comparable group Hamas being not comparable to, to Israel so so there is that point but but the uh, but Labour that's not going down very well he's denied it's tearing his party apart but it's never great when you have to come out with a statement like that and he had to suspend Andy McDonald who had a speech saying we will not rest until we have justice until all people Israelis and Palestinians between the river and the sea can live in peaceful liberty because he used that phrase between the river and the sea, he was uh, suspended as an MP. So, and he also went on LBC sharing the conspiracy theory that Israel must have known the attack was coming. And then it seemed like Muslims were free, fleeing the party and the uh, Islamic party tried to register as a, as a new party, but were rejected by the electoral commission. So I was thinking it was going to go full Michel Welbeck submission where an Islamic party takes over, but and that could still happen down the line, but they were immediately rejected by the electoral commission because they said the proposed constitution did not satisfactorily set out the structure and organization of the party. So they messed up some of the paperwork there. Okay, well, let's do another quick ad from our old friend, Thor Holt, who says, positive results for repeat offenders. Thor's clients return for the same reason he keeps sponsoring Toby and Nick. Unlike prison, advertising on the Weekly Skeptic actually works. Indeed, Thor is so effective that Inno apps have returned multiple times over the years when they needed to get a great result. Dermot, VP of Technology at InnoApps, said this on LinkedIn. I worked with Thor to prepare for a major event where I was the host. Stepping outside my comfort zone, I sought specialist guidance to ensure I was as prepared as I could be. Over the weeks leading up to the event, Thor and I established the tone and voice of the event and brainstormed ideas for the script. 
We also focused on delivery style and ways to improve my presentation techniques. Despite feeling nervous on the day, I knew I was as well prepared as I could be and confident in my message. And thanks to Thor's invaluable help, I achieved my objectives. I highly recommend working with Thor for any presentations, pitches, or speeches that you may need to deliver and Thor's help will significantly improve your chances of success. So WhatsApp Thor on 07906-321-593 or connect on linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. That's 07906-321-593 or linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. And as usual, all those details will be in the show notes. Anyway, any take on Starmer's dilemma here, Toby? It seems to me, basically, he was in trouble for being anti-Semitic. Or, sorry, not, not him personally, but anti-Semitism in the party. And now he's in trouble because the party's not anti-Semitic enough. <laughs> That's one take. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's... Um, I think he's, 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 he's clearly in trouble. And this issue could tear the party apart. And he's in a difficult position because, as you say... Um, He's made a real effort to root out anti-Semitism from the party. And a lot of the uh, pro-Palestinian voices in the party, are the same voices who, um, you know, were, were defending um, the people like Jeremy Corbyn, who've been expelled from the party. Um, but, yeah, and it, 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 it's, it's, it's difficult to know what he, he, he can't. I mean, you know, it, it's a pretty binary choice. Uh, and it's quite, I mean, it's quite difficult for him to uh, call for a ceasefire without it sounding like, you know, he's siding with, with Hamas. Because if you call for a ceasefire, you're essentially saying the Israelis um, aren't entitled to, at the very least, try and get back the 200 plus Israeli citizens who've been taken hostage. Actually, some of them aren't even Israeli citizens. Some of them are Thai guest workers. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, and, and and retaliate against Hamas for their appalling crimes on October the 7th. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 it's very difficult to, 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 to find a middle way. You know, you can, I suppose, you know, decry the civilian casualties and ask for Israel to be... Um, even more careful um, uh, about where it's firing its missiles. But when Hamas are deliberately using citizens, Palestinian citizens in Gaza as human shields and building their network of tunnels and some of their HQs beneath hospitals and mosques and schools and making it very difficult for Gazans to leave Gaza City, um, you really, it's, it's hard to imagine what the Israelis could do uh, to avoid civilian casualties. Someone asked a really good question. One of the leaders of Hamas, you know, they built this, um, you know, ne incredibly elaborate network of tunnels. I mean, they've got this kind of underground infrastructure, um, hundreds of kilometers of tunnels with light and heating and running water sleeping quarters, you know, a lot of the aid has been diverted into the creation of this kind of underground network for military purposes. And someone asked one of the leaders of Hamas, like, did he use any of these resources to build a single uh, air raid shelter for the people of Gaza? Can they use these tunnels to hide from Israeli bombs? You know, you say you're concerned about innocent casualties from Israeli airstrikes. Well, will you let them into your tunnels to shelter there? Answer, no. Um, so it's really hard to, 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 to sort of imagine what, what kind of, what middle way 
Keir Starmer could embrace um, to kind of, you know, triangulate between these different positions. Um, you know, he's just got a lot of kind of anti-Israeli, anti-Western fanatics in his own party um, who it'll be very difficult to placate. And unfortunately, some of them, you know, are shadow ministers. Some of them are in the Parliamentary Labour Party. Some of them are certainly Labour Party councillors, like these ones that resigned in Oxford. Um, so, yeah, it is a real problem. It could tear the Labour Party apart. It's a, it's a, an unexpected gift to Rishi Sunak. Yeah, some of them are now suspended. I mean, is it enough for him to drop the Ming vase? It's been said that all, his only job is to hold, carry the Ming vase to the election and, and not drop it. Is this enough to drop it? I mean, it's not enough for the Tories to win, is it, probably? No, I don't think so. But it, it may be enough to, you know, deprive... Labour of an overall majority. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit sceptical they're going to win an overall majority anyway, as we've discussed before, uh, but this certainly won't help. I'm not sure anymore. The internal division will only intensify as, you know, Israel's ground invasion ramps up. Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm becoming a bit of an accelerationist on it. I'm wondering if uh, it's better for Starmer to destroy the Tories, then we get Farage and we get our, our new party. I don't know, because because I think, yeah, they're so bad that Sunak could do better than we think. Then again, Sunak's been so ineffective. Probably not. So I don't know. Let's see what happens. Wanted to just get that in there. But we're running out of time because we've got to go. And I thought we should maybe have a quick word about the very sad death of Matthew Perry. Obviously a major figure for my generation, because my generation is the Friends generation. We, we'd, we'd watch it after school at 6 p.m. there'd be a double bill and things like this and it was a massive thing in my generation the younger generation don't understand they find it offensive I don't know if it means as much to the old generation but I'm the exact generation for friends and there were some strange responses well first there's the Rorschach test of someone's death now so because he advocated the vaccines people say well it's the vaccine and but also he was a known addict he was at one point I think given a three percent chance to live after a kidney issue I think it was I could be wrong but there was some issue like that because he's had so many addiction problems to alcohol and drugs. And, and so obviously this was an issue. He was in this hot tub. Some people thinking, okay, he, he was dr- drunk, so he fell asleep. The other, the actual medical thing I heard was that it was a heart attack and then drowning. The last thing I checked just before we came on, it was still inconclusive, um, the cause of death. So, But one thing that's really strange, Toby, I just wanted to get this in from Kevin Maguire. It's people's response to a death now. Kevin Maguire felt it necessary to tweet and it seems to have changed back to retweets on X now. So maybe we're calling them tweets again. Anyway, he tweeted, Friends was smug, irritating, not very funny TV that aged badly. There, I've said it. And this was just so strange to me. I said, what a strange response to someone's death. Borderline psychopathic. And that's got like 1,300 likes, just, which I only say, listener, to point out that people agree with me. Because what we have now is someone dies and you, there's a competition to make the darkest joke possible. And that I don't personally like, but as someone who obviously was a comedian for a long time, and maybe still is in some ways, I understand that, okay, you're trying to out-joke each other, and at least there's some redemptive element in the joke. Maybe there's a, it's a way of coping with it, and, and at least it's funny, even if it's bad taste. But what this is, is such a weird response that someone's died in a series, so you think it's necessary to point out that you didn't like it, and you're kind of being edgy by saying this thing. Like, why is someone's death the occasion to say that actually their TV series that was obviously good was actually bad? And it just seems to me that something very online has happened that's really broken people's brains that they think that's an appropriate thing to do. Yeah, uh, I yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of Kevin Maguire's um, and not terribly surprised that he should um, be so insensitive. But having said that, I think I've probably done that before myself. 
and um, spoken ill of the dead, you know, while the body's still warm. Um, regretted it afterwards. But um, as you say, um, social media just seems to be uh, very receptive to, you know, people having brain farts and kind of spewing out turds on <laughs> on social media. I suppose spewing a turd is a mixed metaphor unless something's gone really wrong. But yeah, um, y- y- but yeah, it, if someone has been cancelled suddenly... It, you obviously the lefties would go, oh well, I thought they were crap anyway, right? All these people come forward, well, they were, it was rubbish anyway. If 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 if, if Matthew Perry had done a Me Too, and then Kevin McGuire goes, well, it's friends was rubbish anyway. I've always thought that that would actually make sense. It would be still annoying and cancel culture, but it would make sense when he's died. And then when he's died, okay, people make sick jokes. When he's died to say actually it was crap anyway, this is so so weird. I don't understand where it's what the point he's making. You know, also, he's wrong to say. You know, it, it, it hasn't aged well. Um, uh, my children, I mean, you said, you know, your generation, it was the sitcom. For my children, for their generation, it's the sitcom too. It's the sitcom they all rewatch. My my son yesterday, my 18-year-old son and his girlfriend, I noticed when I was going to bed at about 2 a.m., they were sitting up in our sitting room. I saw through the window watching reruns of Friends um, as a sort of, you know, a way of saying goodbye, I guess, to Matthew Perry. Uh, but it's it's it's. I, I expected, you know, the Larry Sanders show, Seinfeld, to have you know an afterlife to be what survived from that period. But no, what survived is Friends, and it's been a huge success for Netflix. One of the most popular shows. Um, so he's he's absolutely diametrically wrong about that. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And well, I love Larry Sanders' show, of course. Gary Channing was a hero of mine, but I loved all the sitcoms. Fraser, the American sitcoms in that era, Seinfeld, Fraser, Friends, Larry Sanders. Mm. If I was I, really I love desperate, Cheers as well. Cheers as well. Yeah. Sometimes if I was really desperate, I'd watch uh, Ellen or Sybil, and then you're really scraping the barrel. But you know, I was just obsessed with sitcoms. <laughs> like obviously, comedy was something I was very interested in, mm. and thought that's what I was going to do in my life. Life's gone very different and strange, so now we're in a very dark <laughs> and different world from the one I grew up in. But here we are. Um, so we've just done. Well, we've just gone over an hour, I think, Toby, and you've got to go quite soon. So should we just quickly squeeze in one of our many adverts? Yes. This is an ad for LifeGuruAI.com. Elevate your journey with LifeGuruAI.com, where AI-driven insights set the stage for your success. We're scouting for visionary software developers, but here's the game changer. Your coding expertise earns you company equity. That's right. At LifeGuruAI, your code isn't just a job. It's an ownership stake in a transformative AI venture that's redefining both personal success and technological innovation. Whether you're chasing a personal goal or a developer eager to make an impact, LifeGuruAI is your launchpad. A single click at LifeGuruAI.com opens up a universe brimming with infinite opportunities. So if you're ready to shape the future, reach out to us via the website LifeGuruAI.com or email info at LifeGuruAI.com or call the company CEO, Nikki Morris, on 07807901183. And all these details will be uh, on the, on the, uh, just beneath the podcast on Podbean and on our website. Your next chapter in innovation and personal growth starts today. Experience the transformation with LifeGuruAI, your AI-powered pathway to limitless life. All right, thanks for that. And now let's go across to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones with some of the biggest stories of the week. 
Will, um, the uh, Hallett Inquiry um, still dominated COVID news anyway um, in the past week. Um, so let's start by talking about that and in particular an open letter written to Baroness Hallett by uh, Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson, which was first published in Trust the Evidence, reported in The Telegraph, and we then republished it. And it followed uh, Carl's appearance before the inquiry last week in which he was received rather coldly and treated almost as a hostile witness. Yeah, so as we talked about last week, Toby, an extraordinary appearance from Carl at the inquiry uh, where he was treated uh, really disgracefully and really appallingly and and really uh, in a much more hostile way than anyone else so far. Really, really clear evidence of bias. There's a wide agreement about that. Uh, So Carl, uh, with his colleague Tom Jefferson, have written an open letter replying to to Baroness Hallett. She invited them to uh, put in writing uh, any other matters that she wishes Uh, that they wish her to explore. And so they have duly done that. And the open letter they've written is is withering and really understated and very professionally done, uh, much far more professional than what uh, Carl was subjected to by the inquiry. And uh, with with such wonderful phrases as we, we respectfully suggest that you instruct the KCs to refrain from character assassination. Uh, which is uh, uh, just a typical of the uh, of the quality of the and the uh, the level headed nature of the, the of the writing of the le- this letter. So, but it, it doesn't just uh, make those kinds of of points of of, of decorum, but also really makes some substantive points. Really takes takes uh, Baroness apart and her cases for their biased approach, and also just for failing to address the serious questions. This is what they say. They say it's time time to get serious. They say to her. Instead of discussing about the insults that were being thrown around on WhatsApp messages during meetings, uh, they they say, when are you going to get serious about the actual issues? And they list 16 issues that the inquiry should address, but uh, seems to have no intention of doing so. Things like the definition of a case, the definition of hospital, and how the virus actually spreads. Has anyone actually uh, done proper rigorous research onto this? Surprisingly, uh, shockingly, the question is still no, they say. They also point out that Carl was sent in advance 12 areas that they were going to ask him to address during his hour uh, in front of the COVID inquiry, 12 of them, uh, and including some of the areas that they said needed addressing. However, in the event, he was only asked about one of them, and that was the last one on the list, about the Great Barrington Declaration, a document uh, which Carl points out uh, he neither was involved in writing nor actually signed uh, not that he necessarily disagrees with it, but nevertheless, that was the that was the case, and yeah, that's the one thing they asked him about. Nothing about modelling, nothing about test and trace, uh, nothing about care homes, uh, hospital infections. All these things really, really important, um, and yet he was asked by the inquiry to prepare to talk about these things, and yet they asked him about none of them. And to um, uh, underline just how important. Um, Carl is as a witness and how much more seriously he should have been taken. Uh, Sinetra Gupta, uh, who was one of the signatories, one of the original signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration, um, and who hasn't been asked to testify, but has submitted a witness statement, and that witness statement has now been published. Um, She reveals that um, when at that famous meeting between her and Carl and Anders Teniel and John Edmonds and Boris Johnson and various officials at number 10 Downing Street via Zoom in, I think, October of 2020, when Boris was wrestling with the question of whether to impose a second lockdown, that at that meeting, when everyone, save for John Edmonds, 
urged the Prime Minister not to lock down, but to look for alternative ways of trying to mitigate the impact of the virus um, and recommended the Great Barrington Declaration focused protection as an alternative, as a viable alternative. Um, Boris was apparently quite sympathetic. Um, he he seemingly, according to Sinetra, um, wanted to do that. And she left the meeting with the impression that that is what he was going to do. And it was only after he was got at by people like Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings that he then changed his mind and imposed a second lockdown. Absolutely. And uh, and there's been further revelations um, on that. Today, we've learnt uh, that Boris, in a message to uh, Lee Kane, Lee Kane appearing uh, at the inquiry this morning, wrote a message saying that he uh, says that we need to re- recalibrate um, everything we're doing because he's just read the statistics that the average age of death from COVID was higher, uh, was older than the average age of death in the country. And, and, he, and he quipped that uh, get COVID live longer. Um, and and was saying that was, and, and also was also saying he's no longer convinced about this whole NHS being overwhelmed uh, narrative. So he was really getting really sceptical uh, that autumn, and that was all part of the same period. And yet we know that within days uh, he was imposing the November lockdown. Absolutely extraordinary. Uh, but one point that is worth making here, Toby, is because uh, in a previous weekly sceptic we had uh, said that uh, the new chief scientific advisor for the UK, Patrick Valance's successor, Angela McLean, she was of course one of the people involved in these WhatsApp messages, uh, infamously calling Carl Hennigan a fuckwit during the message, and the then Chancellor, now Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, um, calling him Doctor Death because of their opposition to lockdowns and lockdown scepticism. But it turns out that actually, according to Sinetra, uh, she was one of the people in that meeting who was actually supportive of the Swedish approach. And uh, Hennigan also, Carl Hennigan also testifies to that as well. So it makes you wonder what she really thinks if she's, uh, if she's using these insults and seeming to go against these sceptics and then seems to take their side. So who knows what she really thinks? But um, it clearly was a, a place of a great deal of confusion at that time. Yeah. Um, and we know from some of the testimony and the WhatsApp messages that have come out over the past couple of days, um, that Boris did vacillate over what to do. Um, And uh, Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, um, thought he was unfit to lead because he kept changing his mind and failed to give any clear direction. Um, So it's perhaps not surprising that when speaking to the one meeting of that red team via Zoom in Downing Street. He seemed to follow their advice and left them with the impression he was going to follow it, but then a couple of days later did exactly the opposite. Uh, what else has emerged from uh, the uh, inquiry over the last couple of days, Will, from Lee Kane's testimony, Dominic Cummings' testimony, which is ongoing as we speak? That's right. This is hot hot off the press. We had Lee Kane this morning, uh, Dominic Cummings currently uh, giving his testimony in the inquiry. Lee Kane's came out with possibly uh, the most stupid statement so far. Uh, when he said that Boris uh, was wrong and um, he was the wrong man for the time and the moment, he said, because he liked to to listen to a diversity of views over lockdown. He, in other words, he liked to listen to sceptics. He says that if you look at something like COVID, you need quickly uh, that strength of mind to make clear decisions. He was scathing of, of Boris for canvassing that diversity of views, but then he came out uh, in his in his witness statement with uh, with the statement that one of the big problems they had was a lack of diversity in their team. But of course, he doesn't mean a diversity of viewpoints. Oh no, no, as we've heard, he thinks that would be that that was bad and that was wrong. No, no, but he wanted to have a diversity in gender and in race. He says that they were too white 
and uh, middle-aged, uh, sorry, uh, with uh, age and race. He said they were too white and middle-aged um, and they needed more of that, uh, more of that kind of diversity. So here we have uh, yet, yet again the, the 21st century diversity on show, the same set of on-narrative views, uh, all neatly packaged in a pleasing variety of uh, different skin tones. Yeah, we also learnt from Lee Kane's testimony. Um, he was asked about a WhatsApp exchange with um, Dominic Cummings, in which we learned that Dominic Cummings didn't have a particularly high opinion of Matt Hancock than the health secretary. Yeah, this was a, a particularly hilarious uh, moment, a case of a, a, of a stopped clock uh, being right twice a day. We had uh, Dominic Cummings writing to Lee Kane, uh, saying that I must also stress that I think leaving Hancock in post, uh, this was in autumn 2020, is a big mistake. He is a proven liar who nobody believes or should believe on anything, and we face going into autumn crisis with the cunt in charge of NHS still. Yeah, say, <laughs> say what you really think, Dominic. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do quite. And, and then and then there was some more colourful language that emerged during Dominic's testimony today. Do you want to quote a few of those things? Uh, Dominic's testimony or going on, um, going on as we speak. We have him saying that uh, he was not keen on COBRA meetings, like to miss them. Uh, so Boris suggested that COVID was uh, nature's way of dealing with old people, which uh, is uh, is probably not the best way uh, to support the sceptic cause. Pro- possibly not, not something that we would uh, publish on uh, lo- on daily sceptic or lockdown sceptics. And well, I was I was thinking more um, uh, of the fact that Dominic described some ministers and Hugo Keith Casey asked him about this. He described some ministers in a whatsapp exchange as useless fuck pigs morons and cunts apologies to our listeners for dominic's language but i have to say when i hear when there's something it's always quite entertaining um to discover what dominic said you know about his close colleagues behind closed doors and you know you don't get the impression that his withering judgments were entirely wrong um but they're often accompanied by this kind of towering regard for himself i mean the sort of sort of his contempt his withering contempt for almost all his colleagues save for one or two that he brought in himself is matched by his own towering overestimation um, of his own abilities um uh, but uh, nevertheless it's always quite uh, entertaining to see what exactly he said what did dominic cummings really achieve in number 10 i mean he he was out within he was out by was it was it in late 2020 or 2021? I can't remember now. But he was he wasn't he didn't last that long, did he? Um, in in number ten during the thing he, uh, during the pandemic. No, I think he went in in 2021. Um, but um, yeah, no. What did he achieve? Well, I think um, he was part of the consortium of lockdown zealots um, who managed to crush any doubts Boris had about the first lockdown and indeed the second. Um, so, you know, he had an absolutely catastrophic impact and was one of the people I think we, we, we should blame for the fact that we made this terrible mistake. Yes, he, I, I meant what did he achieve for things that we would approve of, but yes, you're absolutely right. He unfortunately did have a, seems to have had a, a, a major impact uh, and not in, the right, not in the right way. Anyway, that's enough about the uh, COVID inquiry. I expect we'll return to it next week. Um, In other news this week, Will, um, Scotland has just reported it has the worst winter death toll in 30 years. Do you want to tell us about that? 
Yeah, incredible statistics from uh, from Scotland. Uh, disturbing statistics, of course, that they had. Uh, they've uh, reported, and the BBC Scotland reported as well uh, that the winter death toll uh, is the worst in Scotland in more than. 30 years, referring to the last winter, of course, 2022 to 2023. And uh, Nick Grendel, one of our regular contributors on The Daily Skeptic, uh, notes that this is three years, uh, nearly three years, after the once-in-a-century pandemic and two years after the population was jabbed in order to end that uh, that pandemic. And yet here we have the... Uh, you can look at the statistics. Uh, they're, on the, they're on the site and obviously on the uh, Scottish uh, health site as well. Uh, and you can and you can see clearly that there is no big jump uh, of the pandemic years, uh, and then this year is higher than than all of them. And it just uh, and it just raises the question, doesn't it, of, of what what on earth is going on? The BBC doesn't uh, raise this question; just uh, just gives the usual explanation of all oh, busy NHS, uh, blah 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 blah. But it does it raises questions first of all of how deadly the the pandemic uh, really was, um, and whether it really could possibly justify the extraordinary measures that we took in response to it, which of course we're now all paying for very dearly. But uh, but but also um, whether whether the measures uh, to to end this pandemic were were really were really effective. And of course, uh, many would suggest that they are themselves these vaccines uh, uh, may be playing a role in the um, uh, extremely high. Uh, level uh, level of deaths. That's an unproven uh, link, of course, uh, but uh, certainly there's no evidence uh, that they that the vaccines uh, or any of the other measures have uh, have done any favours for health in um, in Scotland at all. Yes, and just um, while we're on the subject of Scotland, another story that emerged this week, and I think we covered it yesterday, beneath the story about. Sunetra Gupta's testimony and Boris being sceptical about the need for a second lockdown. Um, is that uh, Nicola Sturgeon has destroyed all the WhatsApp messages um, that she sent and received um, at the height of the pandemic. Um, uh, she's expected to submit them to the Scottish COVID inquiry, which looks to be slightly more robust and a bit more independent than the UK COVID inquiry. But she, she turns out she's deleted all her WhatsApp messages. And um, uh, interestingly, when she was asked, I think in 2020, whether she would retain all her WhatsApp messages for the purpose of submitting them to the inevitable inquiry, she answered in her typically condescending way, I think this was in the Scottish Parliament, um, that um, uh, it was a stupid question because, of course, she would retain them because she recognises it's important to understand exactly what led to the decisions that were eventually made. And um, she wouldn't want to in any way interfere with the post-mortem. But secondly, she has a statutory obligation to preserve them and later submit them to an inquiry. So how could this person have the temerity to suggest that she would do anything not only unethical, but also unlawful? It turns out that's exactly what she's done. Extraordinary, extraordinary story. And uh... Uh, Yousaf as well, Hamza um, Yousaf has uh, had the same um, has been answering the same questions um, on on this. He apparently has kept his. Though. Yes, he yes, hasn't destroyed just, his. Yeah, and he's due yeah. to submit his, so that makes things more difficult for her. Yes, he he has kept his, but he's answering questions about why the uh, senior officials in his party and his government, uh, of which he was uh, was he health minister at the time. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but why senior other senior officials had been been routinely, it seems, or subsequently uh, deleting them. I mean, is there, is there any comeback for that? I mean, this is obviously an illegal action. I mean, is there is there any scope for for legal action to be taken against them, or is this one of those laws where it's against the law but nothing happens? Yeah, that I don't know the answer to. 
um, but maybe she could be found to be, I don't know, in contempt of parliament. Uh, I think that's a criminal offence, um, but um, I don't know the answer. Um, anyway, let's let's end on a good news story, um, Will, um, which is um, we included a brief item this week about Dr. Ahmed Malik, who is a doctor um, who has um, lost his um, uh, practicing privileges at the hospital where he works, cutting his income by about 80%. That's not the good um, news, of course. No, that's not the good news. But he lost he lost these privileges because of um, various vaccine sceptical things he says, uh, he said on Twitter. Um, and uh, he's bringing a case against the hospital that's, that's effectively suspended him. And we asked our readers to contribute to his crowdfunder. And I believe that's now over 23,000. So he's obviously incredibly pleased about that. And we should say thank you to all of those who've contributed to that crowdfunder. Absolutely. So um, so bad news, of course, that he had his medical free speech, which, as he points out, is essential to patient safety. We need doctors and medically qualified people uh, to be free to give their informed uh, professional view on medicines and medical interventions, which is exactly what this was. Even if he turns out to, to be wrong about some things in the end, uh, like many uh, medical people uh, will obviously won't be perfect all the time, but, but that was absolutely essential that our medics um, are free to be able to get their views without fear or risk of censure. Otherwise, we just end up uh, with all, the, all these scandals of the time of, of years past that we're supposed to be learning from, of these uh, dangerous medicines that go on for years uh, before people blow the whistle or recognise that that's partly because uh, medics don't feel able uh, to speak up and aren't listened to. So, uh, so really essential for patient safety, as he points out. And so it's really important that he's able to, to take this case and to challenge. There was a, an earlier uh, similar case where a, a medic was challenged the, the GMC on, uh, on the action taken against uh, him for breaching his free speech rights. And so hopefully that will, uh, that will help uh, in this case as well. Yeah. And if anyone listening to this wants to contribute to his crowdfunder and hasn't done so already, um, if you Google Dr. Ahmed Malik, um, and crowd justice, you'll find it. Anyway, thank you very much, Will Jones, with our top stories of the week. Great. Thanks, Toby. All right. We have a lot of adverts today because we're so massive. So let me just drop in one from one of our new sponsors, The Wild Goose Chef, who says it may seem like we're living through a rather bleak era, but do not be dispirited. Gather family and friends to celebrate the milestones of life. Birthdays, christenings, anniversaries, even funerals. Any excuse is a good excuse to have a party. The Wild Goose Chef specialises in intimate dinners and larger parties for up to 100 guests. If you're having a party, you need the Michelin-trained Wild Goose Chef to do the cooking. He will cheerfully take the stress out of all aspects of planning your event so you can relax and enjoy the night. London, Berkshire, Wiltshire and the Cotswolds, this guy puts himself about. If you're hosting a party, it makes good sense to get a well-trained, experienced and reliable chef to do all the hard work. So call the Wild Goose Chef on 0779-658-164 or email him at joe at wildgoosechef.com. The Wild Goose Chef is a proud member of the Free Speech Union and is happy to offer a 10% discount to other Free Speech Union members. So thank you to the Wild Goose Chef. Sounds good for those of us who don't like to cook. Uh, Toby, do you want to read another advert because we have so many this week? I will, yeah. We're doing well. So uh, this is an ad from um, uh, for, for the Stack Assistant. 
um, who has only just, I think, got through uh, the backlog of all the queries he got based on his previous ads on The Weekly Skeptic. But anyway, he's uh, he's got another ad for us. Last year, Credit Suisse reported that the world has 60 million millionaires. Most have no Bitcoin. If all the 21 million Bitcoins that will ever exist were somehow shared out across them, then each millionaire would get less than a third of a Bitcoin. But 19.5 million of those Bitcoins are already issued. If they somehow split all the rest, then each millionaire's share would drop to 1 40th of a Bitcoin. But Bitcoin's, is- Bitcoin's issuance halves every four years, making new coins ever harder to buy. If all the new coins over the next four-year period were split, then each millionaire's share would drop to just one hundredth of a Bitcoin, currently yours for under 300 quid. In reality, they'll face far stiffer competition, as BlackRock plans to launch a Bitcoin ETF by March, opening the floodgates to companies and pensions. By the time those millionaires realise why they need Bitcoin, they'll have to pay a lot more than 300 quid to secure their share of what's left. Chances to front-run the world's millionaires and BlackRock don't last for long. For advice on how to secure the share you deserve, email thestackassistant at pm.me. That's thestackassistant at pm.me. All right, thanks very much to the Stack Assistant. Speaking of Bitcoin, I noticed mine had gone up the other day. I bought like 150 quid's worth like ages ago when it was at valued at 5,000. And I just forget about it for ages. Then I checked, I was like, oh, it's up to the 460 or something. My idea was just hold it for just forever and one day suddenly like bitcoin's so high that i'm just suddenly rich and i just forget and i just check my bitcoin wallet and i'm accidentally like a millionaire you know maybe it's a, maybe there's a hollywood movie in it um not really it's just a man buying a small amount of bitcoin and holding it for years it's not it's not a good story actually um <laughs> but I, I did buy it at five thousand, which i thought was quite perceptive of me but it, i didn't have enough money to invest a serious amount sadly and that's why the rich get richer anyway that's my little Bitcoin story. Toby, you've got to go soon. So I think we better go into everyone's favorite section, which is Peak Woke. So quite a few Peak Wokes. I think you've got loads this week, actually, Toby. So you should start. What have you got? So I'll try and pick out some. I've got loads. I'll try and pick out some of the bigger ones. I mean, I think this happened um, uh, more than seven days ago, but I don't think we discussed it before, which is News Round. Um, sparking fury over an article teaching children about white privilege, which features um, Kehendi Andrews, um, a uh, professor at uh, the University of Birmingham, um, who once described the Queen as a symbol of white supremacy and wrote a book claiming that all white people suffer from psychosis. Um, And uh, you know, it would be one thing if Birmingham University was promoting this racist drivel, um, but it's being promoted on Newsround, which is, you know, the BBC's kind of main news programme for younger viewers. Why is the BBC pumping out this anti-British racist gobbledygook by this kind of crackpot race studies professor uh, so that was um pretty annoying um but i think newsround has now withdrawn this particular news story and um there's some kind of internal inquiry as to how it ended up publishing it okay that's a good one i might just throw in this one which is almost too big for peak woke but it is pretty woke which is at the robert e lee monument we know it already it was taken down so this was a, a monument by antonin mercy uh, made in 1890 beautiful piece 
however you feel about Robert E. Lee. But of course, with the George Floyd nonsense in 2020, they said oh, it has to be taken down because of the so-called George Floyd murder. We now know with the autopsy, he wasn't murdered. Uh, there's no evidence that it was murder or there was anything to do with his neck or anything like that. Watch Candace Owens' film on that. He was already saying, I can't breathe before he went down, etc., etc. But because of this, we all had to take down this Confederate monument. And and what's the new part is that it's been burnt. It's been uh, sort of melted down. It's been melted down to create a new, more inclusive public art. And that's where it gets really peak woke. You've taken this monument, a piece of history, this great piece, you know, whatever you think. The point is, it's just a statue. It's history. And obviously, we should preserve it. But it's been not only taken down, but now melted down to be turned in to art. I mean, it doesn't get much more peak woke than that. They're literally melting down things and making them woke, Toby. So, yeah, peak woke. Yeah. Um, ridiculous. Uh, yeah, I hope they don't stop melting down the statue of Churchill in Parliament Square. Um, the only one cool thing about it, people were saying that the molten face of Robert E. Lee was quite based. There was like a picture of that. People were putting it as their profile picture. So that's the, <laughs> that's the only positive. <laughs> Um, the, 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 the story I was on Jacob Rees-Mogg show on GB News talking about last night was um, the security services, I think MI5 in particular, have, have um, announced a summer internship program um, to which only black and minority ethnic people can apply. And um, Jacob was interested in, in whether this is against the law. Isn't this surely a breach of equalities law? Um, and it turns out it isn't. So in the Equality Act, there is this loophole whereby you can positively discriminate, um, uh, provided it falls under the heading of positive action. Um, uh, 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 and it's kind of it's ridiculous, but you can give a leg up. You can create opportunities for particular ethnicities uh, that's positive action, provided those ethnicities are historically disadvantaged or underrepresented in the company in question. Um, so if MI5 said only white people can apply for these internships, that would be unlawful racial discrimination prohibited by the Equality Act. But because they're saying white people can't apply, it's positive action, which is allowed by the Equality Act. Uh, pretty shocking. Yeah, that is shocking. It's always weird that that stuff's allowed. I and mean, in some cases it isn't. In the case of the Cheshire police who were successfully sued when they, they didn't hire a straight white man who was who was perfectly qualified in all regards. But, yeah, it is incredible that it goes on. Um, do you have any others, Toby? There's one about a flooring company that we kind of both had that we covered on Headliners. There was a flooring company that had a picture of a woman in high heels and it said, and, and she's laying some flooring. And it said something like, which is easier to lay? I don't remember the exact phrase. And this I was thought, thought that, to be yeah. perpetuating rape culture. Rape culture, yeah, because it said uh, it's a picture of a yeah sexy woman in high heels on this kind of flooring, and I think the the he the wasn't the uh, the the strap line easy to lay, and seemingly it didn't just refer to this particular flooring; it also referred to this woman. But it didn't say easy to rape. It seemed a bit of a stretch to say, you know, I mean, if a woman is described as easy to lay, that means she's quite promiscuous, and you know, you buy her a drink, she'll sleep with you. Um, doesn't mean she's you know, easy to rape, which is a kind of almost a oxymoron. I mean, it's sort of bizarre. Yeah, it was Garage yeah. Force Direct. It's so easy to lay. There you go. And um, yeah. there was some of the feminist people, or whoever it is, these people that complain about it. I remember they said something. I need to get it right. I don't have it in front of me. But they said something like, um, which is it? Are you saying that she's easy to lay or the flooring? And I'm going, 
both that's the pun <laughs> that's the advert it's called that's how it works and it's just like and they took it down immediately because it caused offense and was perpetuating the culture of rape i mean how ridiculous is that yeah um so um i'll just do one more which is uh, um in wales there's a bill currently going through the welsh parliament which is going to make it mandatory for all shortlists for um political candidates um uh, for political office um to to, to be at least 50 percent women so um uh, but they, they, they've also said um that uh, trans women count as women on these shortlists for the purposes of meeting this quota so you know if if if, if you're if you're an, a politically ambitious male in wales um the way to get on a party shortlist for a safe seat is to say you you self-identify as a woman um, and you'll be a shoo-in. Amazing. All right, some good Pete Wokes there. And Toby has to go as soon as I've said, so let's very quickly review the reviews. So we got some interesting ones this week. We had so many five stars. There's too many to read, I'm afraid. But Alfred100 had an interesting one. Updated review. I was previously critical due to one episode in which Toby seemed happy to dismiss requirements for legal due process for Russell Brand. However, last week he acknowledged that his views had been too strong and I now unreservedly recommend this podcast. Toby was absolutely (laughs) right to call time on London Calling. Oh, and then he he says I'm more sensible than and attacks London Calling. So I don't want to get into that. But Toby, that's quite funny. You you eventually said perhaps I was a bit strong on that and they've actually changed to a five star. There you go. Yeah, very as long as you just agree yeah. with people, they will give you five stars. <laughs> a lot of uh, little sort of tyrants out there, but I'm I'm very much the same. But thank you for that updated review. And exploited says my favorite podcast. Interesting, informative, amusing, and lots of great intellectual ammunition against the blob, the faux left, the wokeerati, the climate alarmist, the lockdown loonies, and the WEF globalists. N- nice playoff between Toby's cautious and learned musings and Nick's militant, religious, and reactionary conservatism. <laughs> 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 don't fret nick i'm sure there's a lady out there who'll put up with your idiosyncratic veltenschaun what a word what a use of the word p.s i've recommended your podcast to gb news as a new new program i'm sure it would put boris in the shade what a review and uh, in all good. ways and just one last one because i promised i'd read this out from lily who i met at the battle of ideas big fan of the show great to meet you lily and thanks for listening to the show and thanks for your review which I, so you said i didn't read out so i've now located and will read out and Lily says, great pod. I'm also a London Calling refugee. Oh, and then it attacks London Calling for which I don't tend to read out. But she says, I'm 100% Team Toby. In fact, I once shared a cab with him after an FSU event. I don't know, maybe I'm also a cuck. I've only been introduced to Nick recently since finding this podcast, but he is also, but he's enjoyable to listen to. He's kind of like me, only a bit more based. It shows like these that keep me smiling on my daily commute on the tube, despite witnessing our civilization rapidly destroy itself. Please do a live show. So I, I met Lily last night. She did seem very based. So if I'm more based than Lily, then I'm certainly very based. And we are thinking of doing a live show on December 11th, by the way, at the Hippodrome in uh, central London, right? Yeah, we should we should be able to announce tickets to that event and possibly one on December 4th at Lola's at the Hippodrome as well next week. Yeah, I haven't totally agreed to December 4th, but Toby thinks we should do it. So I'm, I'm not sure about it. And I'm not I think what, one of them should be a live work. recording of the current thing in which you interview someone like Peter Hitchens and the other should be a live recording of the Weekly Skeptic. Well, if people like that idea, we'll do it. I'm a bit worried about the first idea, you know, getting the, an interview and people coming along. Plus, I have to get the nights off work. I do have a, a day job that's at night. But definitely the 11th for the Weekly Skeptic Live 
Uh, let us know if you want to come to that. Well, or just wait for tickets and you can come. It's a smaller venue than last time, which is just because, you know, we have a deal with the venue, not because we need to downsize. We could easily fill a bigger <laughs> one. Um, I think it's about 180 or something. So December 11th, penciled in for that. And please go, if you want to support me, to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. It makes a massive difference. Uh, it's the only way I can keep producing all these blooming podcasts, especially the current thing. Buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. Listen to the current thing as well. We've just had a great episode with Nicholas DeSanto. Loads more great episodes coming. And uh, I think that's pretty much it. Toby, anything you want to plug? Yeah, um, please go to the Free Speech Union homepage, www.freespeechunion.org, and read the uh, bulletin on there about why we should all be alarmed at the prospect of Rishi Sunak introducing a conversion therapy ban, which apparently he's changed his mind about and now wants to do. I thought we'd talked him out of it, but apparently not. He's now been talked around again. So we're urging people, you don't have to be a member of the FSU to do this, to write that we've got a special kind of campaigning tool you can use, only takes two minutes to fill out, whereby you can write to your MP and set out reasons why your MP should urge Rishi Sunak to abandon this crackpot idea. So please go to the freespeechunion.org go to our website read the argument click on the link fill out the email send it to your mp literally only takes two minutes that's it's really important we've got to stop this uh, draconian ban which is going to have all sorts of terrible implications for free speech um and um if you want to sign the october declaration still possible to sign supporting british jews condemning anti-semitism here and abroad urging the BBC to call Hamas terrorists. Um, you can do that. Just go to BritishFriendsOfIsrael.org. That's BritishFriendsOfIsrael.org and fill out the form. It's just beneath the uh, list of the most prominent signatories. Yeah, and I just wanted to quickly thank Strongarm of the Sofa, who left a brilliant review on both The Current Thing and The Weekly Skeptic. I didn't have time to read. I'll read it next time. But he did call The Current Thing smart, heroic, essential. So make sure you go and listen to The Current Thing, and we're going to be expanding a lot in the coming weeks and months as they say but that is it toby's got to go and do one of his many many public appearances so until next week stay skeptical stay skeptical